You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. We welcome back to the podcast, Brian Zahn. Brian, in his newest book, When Everything's on Fire, pulls the lens back on the incendiary deconstruction of Western Christendom, which has been in process for a good while now. In order to help us see how this theological brush fire got started and why it has consumed so many acres of the Western theological landscape, Brian introduces us to some of the important intellectual sparks who got the whole conflagration going. Figures such as the scorching critic Frederick Nietzsche and the daring deconstructionist Jacques Derrida. But it's not just doubtful critics whom we meet. Brian also introduces us to hopeful figures such as Blaise Pascal and Soren Kierkegaard, equal intellects who saw the same problems but still retained hope, even in the midst of them. In Brian's book, we also encounter the intuitive Russian author Dostoevsky, and we meet Dostoevsky's poignant character Prince Mishkin, who is considered an idiot for believing beauty will save the world. Keeping us with Dostoevsky, Brian then transports us to the Grand Inquisition of the mysterious Christ figure and Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, where we witness the old inquisitor suffer the shocking judgment of grace in the form of a gentle kiss given to him by the silent Savior figure. Along the way, Brian bears his own soul and invites us into his own water-to-wine spiritual journey, one which began in a teenage moment of unexpected revelation and then matured in the formative ideology of the evangelical and charismatic movement, and then finally fractured because that ideology proved to be too thin to support Brian as he faced the larger issues, which were pressing in on his growing and maturing faith. But Brian didn't just walk away, he walked through. Brian walked through his own personal fire, and he came out the other side with a faith forged in the furnace of critical and analytical engagement, but more than that, a faith purified, through deeper spiritual practice, through an openness to wonder, mysticism, and finally to the reality of the category of knowing called revelation. Ultimately, this fiery process burned away the wood, hay, and stubble of Brian's previous theological landscape, and what was revealed was the breathtaking vision of the majesty and wonder of God's purposes, nothing less than the revelation that God's ultimate intent was to finally restore the entirety of God's creation in a magnificent apocatastasis in which all things will be made new and in which God will finally be all in all, as we find declared in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. The result of all of this is that Brian's water has been turned to wine, his faith has been renovated, his spiritual house has been restored, and his theological chaff burned away. He's more inspired than he's ever been, and we are the grateful beneficiaries of his life and his witness, and maybe most importantly, his joy. And so with these brief words of introduction, we welcome once again our friend, BZ, Brian Zahn, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Well, thank you, David. That is That was an extraordinary introduction. I mean, really, it was. I mean, I've done a, a fair amount. In fact, I've done a terrible amount of these uh, interviews based on when everything's on fire, but that is by far the best introduction I've had. 
Well, it was it was fun for me to put together. I really um, I really enjoyed the book, but I, I do want to begin with an admission that I read your book in the wrong order because I begin with the end. Sorry about that. Uh, maybe it was the I title that got that me. Do that. I have some friends that that you know they'll read the last chapter first. I just think it's borders on a sin, but you can do what you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it was the title that got me because if everything's on fire. Then I had to find out what was going to survive, what's after the fire. I just had to find out. And what I discovered is that what survives the fire, at least in the terms of your book, is a poem. It's a poem entitled Laughing Now. Mm -hmm. Is it okay if we take a brisk walk over the hot coals of those verses together? Sure. Okay. Well, the poem uh, begins like this. Something is happening to me. Something is bubbling in me like I'm about to laugh. Like I've just heard the best news, unexpected, yet a secret I've always known I believe. Like never before I believe in Jesus. I believe what the Gospels tell, what the creeds confess, but it's more than that. How can I explain? And so you begin the poem with this declaration that there's something within you that's consistent with the Apostles' Creed, with the Nicene Creed, something that's consistent with the historic Christian faith. So it seems that you are wanting to retain the core of the apostolic faith while also bearing witness to something that's a secret that you've always known that you've believed. So could you say just a little more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, well, first of all, uh, I don't write lots of poetry, but I do write some, and I never go looking for them. Uh, I don't sit around and go, hmm, should probably write a poem today. They either come or they don't. But when they come, I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher, I'm a writer. And so my life is really uh, involves a lot of communication. So mm-hmm. I'm constantly communicating. But when I found that there are certain things that just really lie beyond the scope of prose to communicate, um, prose is sufficient until you really start getting closer to the ineffable. And as you get, the closer you get to the deeper mysteries of God, the more prose will fail you and the more you need to turn to the poetic as a means of trying to communicate what you're sensing. And of course, this is, you know, this is also the case in scripture. I mean, that's why you know, when someone says to me, I don't, I don't usually give this retort, but I, I hear someone say, I don't like poetry. I think, hmm, you're going to have a hard time with the Bible. <laughs> so much of this poetry. And well, uh, I like what, what I got here was that you're, you're, you're in poetry mode, but it's like you're, go, you're wanting to go backwards and say, or not maybe backwards, but back to sort of a foundational moment of the faith and recover yeah. something, but also to see something or to reclaim something that you kind of always knew that was there. Yeah. So in other words, it's not, it's something that doesn't feel like this brand new thing, but right. something that was kind of always there, nascent Yeah. in a certain way. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, I think you said it very well. Yes. All right. So back to the point then, it says, you say, um, I believe in the greatest wonder of all, the word become flesh. So God could join us, God becoming human to heal humanity. I believe Jesus is the all in all, all things summed up in him. I believe in the restoration of all things. So here we are going back to the incarnation, 
uh, which I know is huge in your thinking, because the incarnation is more than Christ becoming human. It's the fullest joining of God with humanity for the fullest healing of humanity, the entrance of God in human form. And so in this way, then it leads to a restoration. Could you say more about this? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> of course, I'm drawing, you probably will recognize, I'm drawing upon patristic sources in this poem. Mm-hmm. I'm not the first to say these things. These are how Irenaeus and Athanasius and others would speak of the incarnation. Once the word, the logos of God, becomes flesh, the salvation of the world is guaranteed. Now, things have to play out. It's all going to unfold in the drama that we know is the gospel story. Uh, But it's already going to be saved. Because why does God become human? This is the issue that Irenaeus is dealing with. And, I, and Athanasius, that God becomes human in order to heal humanity. Um, God, because something had gone wrong, and we can talk about it in various ways, what went wrong. I think it's the one thing that almost all of us can agree on, theologically and otherwise. We may not agree mm-hmm. on what the problem is or how it came about, but I think almost everyone can agree that there is something just fundamentally wrong <laughs> with the human race and with human beings. We, we should be able somehow to be better than this. And we, so we see the problem. Ultimately, the salvation is that God in Christ takes humanity onto himself in order to heal it. Not, not, not a, um, I don't think we should think of this in a forensic term. This is not uh, going to be solved by some sort of punishment, penal process, Rather, it's it's much more it's much deeper than that. It's much more holistic than that. It's much more healing than that. God in Christ takes on humanity. That in Christ, humanity might have a new progenitor. And Adam, or Paul, uses the language of a of a last Adam. We usually say second Adam, but his language is actually last Adam. That there was a first Adam, and that is how we understand human origin. And something has gone wrong. And so it's <clears throat> it started again in Christ, and so that, I'm working with those kinds of thoughts, and just and just a couple of lines of poetry. Okay, okay. So continuing on, um, Jesus is the Savior of the world. It's more than the rescue of a few lucky elect souls whisked off to heaven at the last second as a consolation prize for a God whose plan didn't quite work out. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's bigger than we have imagined. I look at the crucified and believe I see the perfect love providing the solution. Arms outstretched to embrace even enmity. Healing a world gone wrong with his wounds. Sin forgiven. Satan defeated. War abolished. Death destroyed. Creation restored. And so now the picture is becoming even clearer. It's more than the rescue of a few lucky or elect souls, not just the best that God could salvage from a plan that didn't work out, but an all-inclusive healing and forgiveness, which leads to the restoration of creation, which reminds me of that Greek term, apocatastasis. So could you say something about this? Well, I mean, part of that, there's a shot across Calvin's bow, (laughs) you know, of... uh, Double predestination, which is, you know, once you start talking about predestination, well, okay. I mean, it's yes, it's it's a, a direct challenge to Calvinism developed in, you know, in the in the uh, 
in the early Enlightenment, late medieval period by John Calvin, drawing upon Augustine. And I'm just turning away from that, turning away from that in loathing. And mm-hmm. you no, know, I, I see, I mean, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Therefore, the world will be saved. We can talk about that. And yes, I'm very much drawn to the word. I say it, apocatastasis. I'm not sure exactly how I say it, but I'm probably have to stick with the way I say it. Apocatastasis <laughs> is, uh, is a Greek word. But it's it's more than just a. It means restoration, or in, implies the restoration of all things. You know, universal restoration, all things restored in Christ. That shows up in Acts three twenty one, when the apostle Peter speaks about the restoration of all things. Um, so it, it's just this one fragment of a scripture shows up one time, and yet from that there has been derived, especially in the Orthodox East, in in, in many of the. Patristic tradition, but it, it, it's ongoing in the uh, in Eastern Orthodoxy. A very robust theology of all things being restored to God in and through Christ. Yes, it would be similar to universalism, but I askew that word. I think we may have talked about this before, but I can't remember. Right. Um, yeah, you don't you don't like that simply word simply because I feel like it's a it's a word that's been sullied. It's been abused. It, it now, that, that word carries with it ideas and implications that I would not adhere to. So I opt for a obscure word. It's actually a very accurate word to, to say mm-hmm. you know, what my eschatology, my ultimate eschatology is, but it's, it's a word that's though perhaps obscure to some um, has not been, misused and abused like I think universalism has. And so that's that's a word I go to. In fact, I use the book I use the word at least once in the book earlier on. This is you know this is how the book ends. This is the very end of the book. It ends with this poem. And I talk about we'll just take a moment here. I mean we're just having a conversation, so we'll just go where <laughs> it goes. Um, my wife and I have led um, pilgrimage tours of the Holy Land for, what is it now, 25 years. We've led more than 20 of them. And it's a labor of love. We just love doing it. And um, one of the things I like to do, it's not really, it's not a formal part of our tour. I just, when we're staying in Jerusalem, we're always, we stay very near the old city, you know, 20 minute walk. And where we usually often stay, if you walk into the city, you walk past, um, Oh, I forgot the actual name of the park. I call it Apocatastasis Park. It's not that's not the name of it. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's in the book, but I, I would have to look at it. Guys, forgotten it's a Hebrew word. Um, I can't come up with it right now. But what it is is it's hell. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. what I mean is it is it is in fact the Valley of Gehenna. Uh, it it is the place that became the metaphorical source for our images of hell as the fire that's never quenched, the worm that never dies. It it begins first with language from Jeremiah and a little bit also from Isaiah, and then Jesus uses it to describe where Jerusalem is heading in its revolt against Rome and all that. And if you could have have been at that park in 70 A.D., it would have looked very different. The fires were not quenched, and the the maggots were devouring the corpses, and it was hell. Um, So 
in one sense, this is the literal hell, see? And yet, if you go there today, it's a lovely park and with, with fountains and manicured lawns and places to stroll. And what's really funny is I'll, I'll point to a sign as we, I say, this is hell. Welcome to hell. And I try to unpack it. I explain it all. This is the origin mm-hmm. of our images of hell because this one's once the garbage dump of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is the first to say, if you continue in your trajectory of rebellion, the whole city is going to be turned into this dump. And that's what happens in 587 uh, when Nebuchadnezzar destroys the city. And then it's repeated again in AD 70, something that Jesus had warned about. And so this is, if you want to talk about a literal hell, this is the site of the literal hell. And yet today, it looks like a beautiful park with fountains and mm-hmm. places to stroll and all that. And then, But as you enter the park, there's a sign. And it's in Hebrew, so most people can't read it, but it's one of those kind of international signs that you that it has an image, so you know what it means. Mm-hmm. And it means it means no fires. <laughs> yeah. so, so literally in hell today, you cannot have any fires. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's got it's got a picture of a fire. What they really mean is, you know, you can't build a campfire here. But I right. play around with it. You know, apocatastasis becomes so thorough that even in hell you can't kindle a fire. So anyway, yeah, it's. it's well, it's, I like it that the valley, the valley of of Hinnom, yeah. the Vale of Hinnom, as David Bentley Hart translates it, is now uh, is it, you you now experience as apocatastasis park. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The park is actually uh, here's here's the sentence. If I could rename the Gay Ben Hinnom Park, I would call it Apocatastasis Park, the park of the restoration of all things. What can we do when everything's on fire? We can remember that even the fires of hell are not the end of the story. I have living proof that even Gehenna can become a garden, that even hell can become a park, a garden park where no fires are allowed and the fountains are never quenched. Ooh, I, I forgot yes. I wrote that last line. That's a good line. I like that. <laughs> No, I, I I noticed that one. I, I appreciate. It. Thanks, thanks for reading that. But well, let's continue on in the in the poem. It says, uh, "I believe in the mystic's thirteenth revelation of divine love, and all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well." I didn't say I can explain it or defend it, but I believe it. Now here it seems to me that we have an allusion to Julian of Norwich yes. and her thrice repeated mystical declaration that in the end all shall be well. And it seems to me that you've had a similar experience, a mystical revelation of a glorious truth that you can't fully explain or defend, but which you still very passionately believe, and which has led you to what I will call an informed mysticism, which transcends simplistic fundamentalism and over-analytic liberalism, and then ends up with the same revelation which Julian of Norwich received, that all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. So could you say a little more about that? Yeah, Julian, I mean, uh, in the poem, I just, you know, it's kind of, if you know who I'm talking about, you do. If you don't, you don't. But yeah, Julian of Norwich was uh, a woman that lived through the very tumultuous uh, 14th century in England. This was a time of uh, political instability, of a fair amount of war, some economic crisis, but most of all, the Black Death, the bubonic plague that in certain places uh, in Europe was killing 
up to half of the people or perhaps even more. And it appears that Julian in this town of Norwich uh, contracted the plague and hovered between life and death for some time. And during this time, she had a series of revelations given to her by Jesus. She didn't talk about them, apparently, for quite a while. But she'd had these revelations in a state of what we would probably today call, you know, a near-death state, a near-death experience. Mm -hmm. And there were these series of, I've forgotten the exact number, maybe 17 or I've forgotten now, but something like that. And that might be the right number. She called them divine showings. And she didn't talk about it for a long time though she eventually became what is known as an anchoress. That is a woman that's it's kind of like, you know, uh, uh, who, who's the woman? Anna, you know, in the temple that she didn't depart. She was there day and night. This was something that would happen in medieval period. And she was simply, she was actually just completely attached to this church in Norwich. And she lived there day and night and prayer and fasting and became known for her holiness. And people would come seek her counsel and prayers and that sort of thing. Uh, but eventually she wrote a book, and it's notable that this is the first book in the English language written by a woman. The first yeah. published book in the in the history of the English language by a woman. Uh, Revelations of Divine Love by Julian Norwich. And so much later in life, she thought it was time now to share her experiences during this time. And there are more or less conversations between her and Jesus or what Jesus has shown her during this time. And in the 13th revelation, there, uh, the, the subject is the mystery of the fall and, and why the, we would today maybe call it the problem of evil. Why is there evil? Why is there suffering in the world? And yes, it does have to do with sin. Jesus, Julian suggests this. And in their conversation, as Julian reports it, Jesus says, yes, sin is the matter of all of this suffering. But Jesus doesn't seem to want to linger there and goes on and says, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. This is by far the most, the most famous line from this entire mm -hmm. book. And, and people might even recognize that without knowing where it came from, but it comes mm -hmm. from Julian's of Norwich's report of a revelation, a mystical experience with Christ. And understand that, that you know, I know when I talk like this, some people get terribly nervous. I, okay, I get it. Uh, but on the other hand, this is our long tradition in both Jewish and Christian faith is that, that mystical encounters with God are not only possible, but even normative. And maybe if, to assuage some people's anxiety, I'll say, look, uh, Julian of Norwich is, was, was 14th century. We're in the 21st century. We've had 700 years to consider these things. And the church has consistently said this is edifying. This is something that's credible. This is, uh, this is a message that we should listen to. And... I I think it's I think all all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well is entirely consistent with Romans eight twenty eight that God causes all things to work together for good. Okay, well, continuing on with the poem, I believe the gospel John gave 
the Galilean prophet who is I am, bread, light, gate, shepherd, resurrection, vine, way, truth, life. I believe we can eat his flesh and drink his blood and live forever. Now, in John's gospel, Jesus is compared to many things to which you allude, but then there is this striking passage that Protestants especially have not known exactly what to do with. In John 6.53, Jesus is quoted as declaring, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And as I listen to your sermon podcast, each sermon ends with an invitation to the table in a moment which seems to me to be truly sacramental. So I come from the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, and communion is central to our worship experience. But most non-denominational church worship services are not oriented towards communion like yours is. And you also seem to have really turned up the dial on communion being a profoundly sacramental participation in Christ's body given and blood shed for us. And so could you say a little bit more about this? Yeah, I am. I and the church I lead, we are deeply sacramental. We're very hard to describe. We're hard to pin down. I mean, the history of our church is fairly simple in one sense, although maybe not. I mean, we come from the Jesus movement through the charismatic movement, word of faith. And then there's my whole water to wine journey that began 17, 18 years ago. And I led the church into a new place, which involve becoming very sacramental. That is, what we will confess at Word of Life Church is, the, what, well, the real presence. The real presence of, the, of Christ in the bread and wine of communion, which, um, is not in, is, which is not limited to a Orthodox or Catholic world. I mean, John Wesley, mm-hmm. coming from the Anglican tradition, founder of Methodism, confessed real presence. Now, I'm, we're not, I'm not, uh, we're being a little bit here theological. I'm not trying to be, uh, I think Aquinas maybe pushes it too far and tries to explain too much. And so I'm not going as far as Aquinas in what, you know, is generally known as transubstantiation. I'm just simply confessing what the Apostle Paul said. He says, uh, the cup of blessing which we bless is our participation, koinonia. I think some people will know that Greek word sharing, Mm -hmm. communion, common union. Uh, The cup of blessing which we bless is our participation in the blood of Christ. The bread which we break is our participation in the body of Christ. It's not merely a symbol, a sign, a memorial. It is at some level a mystical, sacramental participation, koinonia, sharing, fellowship, communion in the body and blood of Christ. And when, when we made that shift... It, it, it really it really changed things. I mean, I'm a preacher. I've been preaching for 40 years now. Um, but I like it that when we gather as a congregation on Sunday morning, the trajectory of the church service is toward the climactic moment of partaking communion. It's not the sermon. It's not other stuff. Those are fine. But... The, the true climactic moment is when we come to the table and we hear the words, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, and we, in an embodied way, participate mysteriously, mystically, sacramentally mm-hmm. in the body and blood of Christ. It kind of changed everything. So that today, I'll be a bit forthcoming here, if I find myself in a church on Sunday morning that doesn't offer communion, 
I don't say anything. I don't have a judgmental, you know, attitude in my heart. But I have this sense it never quite became church. <laughs> you, under, you understand that yeah. that I mean, for people to gather together and have someone speak on a certain topic, on or for there to be music, and well, that's that's not unique. To take bread and wine and call it the body and blood of Jesus and share it among ourselves—that is. That is uniquely Christian. And so that's, you know, what is the church without the Eucharist? It seems like it falls short, that it, it, it was a gathering, a rally, an instruction, a song time, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's all good. But did it really <laughs> break into church? And uh, so, yeah, we're sacramental at Word of Life Church. Yeah, well, it's interesting to me, just to, having observed lots of different worship service, that it's this sort of non-denominational church service that then turns, but it's also got liturgy and lectionary yeah. and sacrament, yes, and it's all oriented towards the table. And so that that seems to me to kind of be a, a, a return, a, in a way, to, uh, to, to centering of some kind that you're, do, that you know, you're doing there. I mean, much of what I— describe as my or our water to wine journey um, involves an increasing respect for the great tradition. We're progressive in the sense that we understand that all that needs to be said about God revealed in Christ has not been said, and we constantly uh, have to understand the time in which we live and learn how to speak to it appropriately in the light of Christ. On the other hand, we're not untethered from a long tradition that I think is very important. And so, um, and, and that's why, interestingly, David, I will regularly, in the, especially in the world of social media, face criticism from both conservative fundamentalists and very progressive Christians. And they can't quite figure out what I am. And, and they'll, they'll see me say something, oh, he's one of us. But when I don't just adhere to that line, then they become offended that, I, well, he's not a true progressive or he's not a true conservative. Well, I, I'm not pledging any allegiance to any of those isms. I am trying to be faithful to Christ, but I understand that both of those have a role and they need to be held somewhat in tension. But I'm not going to go join just a particular tribe so that I can belong to an, an ism. And so, so be it. <laughs> Well, you're so you're a non-denominational ecumenical church. Well, here, here's an, here's another point about this, David. Uh, if if I were tasked with defending uh, non-denominational churches, I would mm-hmm. probably decline the task. I don't think I can. I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's a sign of our brokenness. My only personal defense would be it's what happened. <laughs> it was the Jesus <laughs> yeah. movement, and something, and 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 I'll point to a particular local church called Word of Life Church in Saint Joseph, Missouri, and I will say, you will see the life of God here. You will see the grace of God here. You, you will see lives through the good news of Jesus being healed and transformed. So that's my defense. It doesn't mean it's a model to follow. And so I am, for many years now, rather embarrassed that we're a non-denominational church. Of course, then I have all, everybody, you know, says, well, you can join ours, but it's not that simple. Uh, <laughs> so, 
so to correct that, or at least I don't know if I, I don't know, correct's maybe not the word, but in light of that, we are deeply, intentionally ecumenical. Mm-hmm. I, I'm by default a, pro, a Protestant, but I'm not protesting anything. Uh, and I, I feel very comfortable in the Orthodox, Catholic, Anglican worlds, the, uh, the Anabaptist world. Uh, so, yeah, we are, we are, there, there's just, that's, that would be one of the values that would be present in our culture at Word of Life, that we, it's, you're not going to hear us taking cheap shots at other, I say that, sometimes we can be a little bit snarky about Calvinism. Um, I may have to think some of that through, but outside of Calvinism, uh, we tend to be very generous in, in our estimation of these other denominations and their history and tradition. All right, well, let's uh, continue on with the poem. Uh, I believe the vision John saw New Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. I'm laughing now because I believe it when Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. I'm laughing now because I believe that in the end, love wins. Love believes all things and hopes all things. What would love believe about God? Believe that. What would love hope for humanity? Hope that. And laugh now, if just for a little bit. So could you tell us more about what it means for you, for love to win, and for us to believe what love believes about God, and to, and to hope for what love hopes for, for humanity, and even to allow ourselves a moment's laughter. Yeah, um, yeah. This will take a minute because there's a lot there actually. Um, where to start? I believe several things that. Uh, create a lot of tension when you believe them simultaneously. First of all, I believe that God has a single disposition toward anyone and everyone at all times. And that is one of unconditional, unending, unchanging love. That God's only disposition towards his image-bearing creation known as human beings is love. Now, this love is active, it's coming to us, but it can be experienced in different ways. And it could even be experienced as a form of wrath if we very deeply intentionally resist the love of God. I think that's when the the, the river of fire that comes from the heart of God, this is drawing upon Ezekiel's vision, speaks of a river Mm -hmm. of stream of fire, that if we respond to it with love, it's warmth and light. If we resist it and want to stay in our selfishness, in our idolatry, in our injustice, that fire then becomes more of a purging fire that could be experienced as something like either wrath or judgment or any of that sort of thing. Okay, that's the first thing I believe. Uh, the second thing I believe, though, because this is tied to it, is that 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 humans, to be authentic beings, must be entirely free. I'm an absolutely, I'm not a determinist. Now, I don't think we're as free as we pretend we are, but it's not because it's predestined. It's because we've become bound by all kinds of things. But if we are not free in our will and in our actions, then ultimately this is... 
The phenomenon of being is simply a movie playing in God's head. And that I don't believe. I believe there is authentic freedom because it's necessary for authentic being. Now, this is, would be one of the things I don't know that I can absolutely prove. I'm, I don't know how you would do it. Um, you know, it's, it's a topic within philosophy, determinism, and free will. But I, I just decidedly arrive in the camp of free will. So God loves everyone unconditionally, eternally, and at every given moment, uh, we're free to respond how we, to a certain extent, choose. And that creates this tension of, well, can, can the love of God be eternally rejected? And I say, in theory, yes, because at any given moment, in any given moment, we can oppose the love of God. Not, we, we can seek to not coordinate our lives with the love of God, not to receive it, not to participate in it. Well, then this creates the question, which wins in the end, whatever the end is, how, you know, which end? And here's where in the poem where I just simply says, I, if I have to bet, I'm going to bet on God's love being more eternal and enduring than human rebellion. Yet at any given moment, that love can be resisted. But I, I just believe that in the end, it's the love of God that prevails, not through coercion, not through force, uh, and not apart from an honest accounting and all the other things I would want to throw in as caveats. But if I'm just if 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 you you know put me up against the wall and say what happens in the very end, I say I think in the very end the love of God wins and God is all in all, as the Apostle Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen. Well. One of the strong I mean, distinctions. Which, that, which, which, which uh, church father? Because you might know this, David. Which church father was it that said, "In the end, there will be nothing but God loving Himself"? I can't. I actually don't know. Uh, and that's a you know that that's the kind of statement that's that could be reckless and could be certainly misinterpreted. Uh, but it's, I can't remember who said that, but they're working from 1 Corinthians 15 that in the end, all things are brought into God and healed. And it, it's not the extinguishing of our individuality or our own uh, sense of self, but we are so then assumed into God so that as the Apostle Paul says, God is all in all, that in the end, God, it, it all is God loving God's self. Well, I, I just finished an interview with John Baer on his new translations of mm -hmm. Origins on First Principles and Gregory's on the making of the human image or the making of humankind yeah. or the making of the human image of God. Anyway, but in that interview, he said that that, that was kind of the fundamental way that the, that the early church fathers um, read Scripture was with the idea when they said when he said scripture they're looking at the, the what we might call the old testament but yeah. they're looking at that as scripture with the idea that that the veil has been lifted and so now they're seeing all of scripture as a movement towards this time when god will be all in all at least that's how origin and the cappadocian fathers and 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 then that tradition uh, was able to uh, keep itself alive in the in the eastern yeah. you know, in the Eastern church, but that was how they read, that was how they read scripture. 
Right, and I'm I'm with John Bear. I really like. Well, I'm doing a uh, I'm on a panel with him that's going through the Book of Revelation, and I like John Bear. He's 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 a uh, he's a top notch, top tier theologian, uh, but he's also just kind of a cool guy. <laughs> I like John Bear. Yeah, I really you know I really feel like when I'm talking with him, I'm getting as close as I could be to if I was talking with Origen or Gregory. That he You're not really going to talk just with anybody who knows the church fathers today better than Father John Bear. I mean, that's his life's work. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a, we're yeah. lucky to have him with us in this time. Yeah. Now, um, now, one of the uh, strong distinctions you want people to consider as they reorient or renovate their faith is the difference between Jesus and what you call moribund Christendom. You emphasize how those who attack Christianity, such as Nietzsche, don't usually criticize Jesus, but rather the imperial, violent, institutional, nationalistic church which developed around him. What would you say to someone like the philosopher Bertrand Russell? In his book, Why I Am Not a Christian, he critiques Christ himself this way. Russell wrote, There is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Christ certainly, as depicted in the Gospels, did believe in everlasting punishment. I must say that I think that this doctrine of hellfire is punishment for sin as a doctrine of cruelty. It is a doctrine that put cruelty into the world and gave the world generations of cruel torture. And the Christ of the Gospels, if you could take him as his chroniclers represent him, would certainly have to be considered partly responsible for that. And so one of the things that you encourage people to do is just, you know, go back and take a look at Jesus, go back to the Gospels, read, you know, read about his early ministry. But when they go there, they're going to find something, they're going to, in English Bibles, they're going to find the word hell there. And, um, you know, they might, they might wonder, how can they reconcile that? this This is a big problem. And the problem is that you have these words Okay, let's let's unpack this a little slowly. We can almost entirely set aside the Old Testament because the Old Testament doesn't have it has virtually no theology of an afterlife. The Hebrew word sheol simply means grave. There is some concept of a, a sort of a shadowy disembodied existence in sheol. Uh, but it's not, there's not punishment and it's, and there's no real distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous as far as show. It's just the, it's just the part of, it's, it's just the realm of departed souls. The, the, uh, sometimes the psalmist speak of it as forgetfulness. So we'll just leave aside the Old Testament. The New Testament, uh, you have these words like Gehenna that we just already referred to, which is re- referring to a specific historical geographical spot south of Jerusalem, this valley that was the garbage dump, Gehenna, uh, Hades, borrowing from just, you know, Greek mythology, uh, Tartarus, and then just the various images that Jesus gives warning about the impending judgment to come, and also uh, fire as a forms of purification. Well, But what happens then is, as this word gets more or less translated in English out of this Norse word, hell, it picks up all kinds of meanings. 
through that, that are not germane to the origin and to the text. But as it journeys through history, whether we're talking about Dante's Inferno or these god-awful chick tracks or the First Baptist Hell House on Halloween, it picks up all, or just Hollywood or popular culture, it picks up all of these meanings. And what Bertrand Russell would want to reject Christ on the basis of a certain understanding of afterlife judgment, well, we've just already touched on it. Uh, Father John Bear can tell you, yeah, and so did so did a lot of the church fathers. David Bentley Hart will say that apparently at one point in the eastern part of the in the Byzantine eastern half of the of Christendom, the theological position was dominant toward apocatastasis, that in the end God will reconcile all things unto himself. And so hell is understood as eternal conscious torment that is purely punitive. There, there's, there's nothing therapeutic or redemptive about it whatsoever. That is completely contrary to everything that both we find coming directly from Jesus in the Gospels and from the most ancient theological tradition engaging with these concepts. So uh, Bertrand Russell like, like uh, Voltaire, like Nietzsche, like others, are rejecting an aberrant distortion of Christianity. Now, let me let me push a little further. Uh, it's very interesting that uh, Bertrand Russell would say, "Well, I'm rejecting Christ in part because of uh, this doctrine of hell." Well, it, okay, so be it. But it reminds me of uh, something that Rene Girard said. Rene Girard this is very insightful. He said, Voltaire and his successors only criticize Christianity with Christianity. <laughs> and so Bertrand Russell has actually picked up a concept of a God of love and universal love. And that now abide these three, faith, hope, but love is the greatest. And so he's saying, mm-hmm. well, that doesn't seem very loving. Well, where did you get that in the first place, that love is supreme? So uh, I, I think there's a, a lack of awareness that, in fact, what Bertrand Russell and so many others are doing in that moment is using that which has actually they have been inherited, the best they've inherited from Christianity, they're using it to criticize Christianity. So that, in, in fact, what they're mm-hmm. saying is, I am seeing aberrant forms of Christianity that are not Christian enough, to which then we say, amen. Yeah, I was just thinking of somebody who is going to take a chance on this and go and read the Gospels, and then, you know, they're running across all these hell passages, and they're just not knowing quite how to do it, depending on the translation that, you know, that they get. Yeah. And so— I'm just glad that uh, I just wanted to make sure we we you know we 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 covered that. Now there's also another uh, there's another big problem, and that's how how can we understand why a good God would allow so much evil and suffering to take place in the world, especially when the evil and the suffering is perpetrated in God's name? Yeah. And one of the solutions to this problem that um, that people in deconstruction often come up with is to say that God maybe God really uh, simply is not in control and cannot intervene in the affairs of this world. And about this, you write, it's become increasingly common to hear those who have gone through some form of theological deconstruction say, 
I no longer believe in an interventionist God, but this strikes me as little more than functional atheism. Are we back to the absent clockmaker God of the 18th century deists? Who needs a non-interventionist God? What good is that God? If God doesn't intervene, then we must all save ourselves, which is to say we are all lost. A God who does not intervene is not the God of the Bible, not the God of love, and not the Father in heaven that Jesus talked about. If others no longer believe in an interventionist God, I resolutely do. Amen. (laughs) Uh, Well, ultimately, I mean, that is me... I mean, I don't name it because I'm not really looking to pick a fight, but I am being a bit critical of some open theism there, which I am sympathetic to. Ah, The open theists that I know are wonderful people, and I'm very sympathetic with why they're doing what they're doing and where they're trying to. But open theism is essentially a theodicy. And it's more or less saying that all of these horrible things God didn't, perhaps didn't know was going to come. That I find that I'm just very deeply incredulous of that. And that, um, or that God simply is incapable of intervening. That, that God's relation relationship with His creation is such that God just simply does not control anything. I do understand that freedom allows for all things to happen. I get that, but that does not foreclude God also being present through grace, through love, through mercy, through the incarnation. I mean, if you want to talk about intervention, that's the ultimate intervention. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the word, the logos of God, God's own understanding, God's idea of God's own self assumes humanity, flesh, incarnation and incarnate incarnation and that's the ultimate intervention so uh, i i think theologies driven by theodicy tend to go awry and i don't know that we have an adequate theodicy in the christian faith the theodicy is the attempt to reconcile the seemingly contradictory claims that god is omnipotent, omniscient, and all-loving, and yet babies get brain cancer and all kinds of horrible things happen. I mean, all kinds of horrible, all manner of horrible things happen. How do you reconcile that? Okay, there's all these attempts. I think I find, first of all, the Bible is not unaware of the problem. The Bible is aware of the problem, Mm -hmm. as the book of Job and other places make clear. Job is not a theodicy, by the way. Uh, Job is a poetic portrayal of the problem. And if it's addressing anything, it's it's just a, the challenge of reading the book of Job is if you can remember through the entire book what you are told twice in the first two chapters, and that is that Job is blameless. All right, we're told that twice. This is this is you know a factual foundation in the story. Job mm-hmm. is blameless, but then the Satan, Hasatan, the accuser, blames Job, and then the Hasatan in the narrative disappears. There's no more Satan, except the Satan doesn't disappear. The Satan shows up in Bildad, Zophar, uh, Eliphaz, and then and then the worst one is that young one, Elihu, at the end. He's, some people think he's the voice of reason. He's the worst. He's the worst. Uh, and, and they all, their only theodicy is to say somehow Job deserves this. 
and they blame Job. And then there's the whirlwind appearance and the whirlwind speeches that somewhat overawes Job, but that's not a theodicy. That's simply God also acknowledging that God is aware of the problem and that the solution offered by the accusing friends is false. That's made very clear. I think the only theodicy we have is that if real freedom leaves the door open for evil and the subsequent suffering that comes from it, God has not exempted himself from it. But God fully participates in it with us. So God is not aloof and foreign and and untouched by it, but in Christ, God hangs upon a cross, an unjustly condemned man dying a torturous death. So, so that's the first statement. The first statement is that, that God has not exempted himself. He suffers with us, but that his suffering is going to be that which is part of how all things are restored. And, that, and of course, this is, this is what Ivan Karamazov doesn't believe. Ivan says, um, I, um, I don't believe that anything, any outcome can justify the kind of suffering we've seen. And so he says, I'm going to return my ticket. Um, but in doing, and he, do, he does this <clears throat> after challenging his novice monk brother Aloysius' faith, trying to destroy it in various ways, but particularly by highlighting the suffering of children. But what Aloysius, what, what Ivan doesn't seem to understand is that in returning his ticket, what he's also saying is everybody else has to return their tickets. That no one, that, that nothing can be set right. That even for the, the little girl that's beaten and locked in the outhouse by her cruel parents and she beats upon the door with her little fists saying, dear God, dear God. And that's how Ivan tells the story. That even, even she has to return her ticket. That there can be no setting of right, setting to rights all that has gone wrong. And in the end, Aloysia and then his his elder, Zosima, um, bring forth the, the alternative view. That, no, in the end, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And part of what, um, part of the advice in the council, because Dostoevsky presents the problem head on. He doesn't, he doesn't skirt the issue at all. But he winds up as a believer. And so what does he do? He's Well, through Zosima, he's responding to that. And part of what Zosima tells Aloysia is, look, you can rail against other people's sins, but no, you don't do that. You take their sins on yourself and you say, I'm responsible for all that I too am responsible and I'm not I'm not going to be in the position to stand aside and point my finger at these terrible people who have done these terrible things but no I say I am guilty with them and so that we join together in our guilt and in loving one another even the enemy in in believing all and, and as we do this we believe the promise of the eschatological hope that in Christ all things will be restored. I and well, you know I, think what? I, I don't know that that's an adequate theodicy. You'll have to decide. It's the only one I know of, and I believe it. Based now, we're going to get back to this. I believe it because I believe that's what's been revealed to me. 
and I can't walk away from what has been revealed and be true to myself. What, what I have perceived through revelation in my heart that God is good, God is love, and God has a apocatastasis eschatology for all of creation. Now, when we think of the purpose and work of an interventionist God, we have to ask uh, what the ultimate purpose of an interventionist God is. And along those lines, you make the following reference to the Apostle Paul. You observe, the Apostle Paul is never more the theologian than in his three-chapter discourse on election in Romans 9 through 11. Paul sums up his dense theological argument by saying, God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. That's Romans 11.32. But then Paul breaks into an ecstatic doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, Romans 11.33. So, Paul, what does, uh, I mean, so, so Brian, what does Paul's declaration of mercy to all followed by doxology mean to you? I think it's, it's, I think it's Paul arriving at the end of his theology. I, I, you know, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are sometimes, well, they're either avoided or often terribly misunderstood and misinterpreted. Uh, but it's right at the center of his great theological accomplishment, the book of Romans. And I think it's the, I think it's the, it's the grand course, it's the culmination. And what people have done, Calvin did this, some others have done this, they get lost in the weeds in Paul's dense argument. And Paul, at one point, posits the possibility of vessels of destruction. That is, human beings created for the sole purpose of being destroyed, whatever that would mean or look like. But Paul raises that question because he knows that in the end he's going to sweep it aside and say, because Paul literally uses the language, what if, what if, what if, what if. But it's a what if that he dares to raise because he knows it's not the case. Because how, I mean, you can follow the argument if you really try, but if you can't, you can at least see Paul's conclusion. And Paul's conclusion is that God has shut up all in disobedience that God might be merciful to all. Now we sing the glorious doxology of praise to God. And so... um, you know, if if we could have the Apostle Paul on this podcast, which would be entirely awesome, <laughs> I, I, and and we put it to Paul, uh, do you think that in the end all will be redeemed? I think Paul would probably say, "Have you read my books?" That's what I say, but it doesn't happen apart from judgment that uh, just lends itself to the metaphor of fire. That, look, there is chaff, and it's going to be consumed in the fire. And what is chaff? Well, chaff is, is that which is not the Imago Dei. So... I mean, if if I pass through the fire of God's love, will and and things are lost. In the end, I say hallelujah. That's what needed to be burned up. 
It did need it. I didn't that because we can become, I mean, we're gold, silver, precious stones of the Imago day, but we're so encrusted with wood, hay and chaff and stubble that we can't shine like the diamonds that we are. And of course, I'm, I'm using metaphorical language, so try not to be overly literal with it, but that's that's the only mm-hmm. recourse when you're talking about, you know, ultimate transcendence and these deep mysteries. So there is within me, because I'm a child of God, I'm created in the image of God, that is the, that is the diamond that can never be destroyed. I mean, you can... The image of God can be marred and lost and obscured, but not destroyed. And so if I pass through a judgment that is like unto fire, like unto a refiner's fire, like unto a furnace of fire, I may suffer as I lose wood, hay, stubble, chaff, which was always false, never who I really was. I may have grown so attached to it that in the process of losing that, I may see it as anguish, but in the end, all that is left is that which is true. So we could say, if you want to play around with it, you can say hell is populated with false selves. That 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 in the end really lack any ontological substance. Well, one of the things, Brian, that impresses me about you is how it is that you have come through so much, yet how you have so much optimism. You seem to have arrived at an essential state of joy and happiness and hope. And one of the sections I really enjoyed in the book was where you spoke about certain kinds of pine trees, which produce special resin-coated pine cones that only release their seeds in fire. And you use this as a metaphor and you write, these kinds of trees are dependent on the destruction of forest fire to reproduce. Resin-sealed cones and fire-activated seeds await the flames that will liberate them. For these trees, fire is not the end, but the beginning. Christianity may be like these fire-dependent trees. Sometimes we need some old things to burn down before we can have new growth. We don't always realize that some of what we cherish is just the wood, hay, and straw of dead religion that would be better that we would be better off without. It's clear that much of the church in Western Europe and North America is being consumed in the scorching flames of modernity but this doesn't mean it's the end of the Christian forest. These flames can be a purging fire that will ultimately liberate the church from lifelessness and clear the way for a spirit-infused newness. Could you say a little bit more about that? Uh, I can try, but I said it pretty well there. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I am optimistic. Uh, this is not me putting a brave face on it. I, and at the core of my being, I believe that that which Christ is building, the gates of death, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell shall not prevail against. That doesn't mean, though, that all that is built in the name of Christ is truly his church. I mean, clearly that's not the case. And I think we're entering a season. I mean, it's been coming for quite a while. Nietzsche saw it coming. That's a book opens with me talking about what Nietzsche foresaw accurately. Uh, It's been coming for some time, but it's here now. I mean, that's why I give the book the title, When Everything's on Fire. And that fire is not soon to be extinguished. It's going to continue for the foreseeable future. If you ask, what do I see on the other side of these flames? 
um, it, for the church in the West. Well, I mean, it, I mean, I'm just guessing mostly. I, I think the church is chastened, greatly reduced. I, I'm talking, you know, what what does Christianity look like in America 50 years from now? I, I'll be 92. No, I'll be 100. No, I'll be 112. I'll be. I'll probably be gone. <laughs> uh, so, so what? What I think is going. Well, I think it's it's chastened. It's greatly reduced. It's no longer even a, in, a, in a position for to, to contend for some sort of cultural dominance. I mean, the church went into the culture wars, and and here's what you need to remind people that go to war: you could lose. You know. <laughs> You could mm-hmm. lose, so you know, you're off to war, and you're going to lose this war. Uh, you know, I mean, a a battle here and there won does not mean winning the war. And so, if if the church goes to war against secularism and the idea that it's going to overcome it as a cultural phenomenon, no, that is not what's going to happen. Uh, but the church itself will survive. That is, there will be those that are still captivated by the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, will build their lives around it, and they'll do it in, together in some form. But these will be in smaller numbers. Uh, but none of that's now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's probably just a necessary thing. I mean, I've visited these forests, you know, especially in California, where you have the, the sequoias and the, and the redwoods and all of those things. And then you just learn that, wait a minute, fire is actually part of the necessary natural life cycle of these kind of forests. I think they just do not become what they are meant to become. They don't survive. They don't exist as they exist without periodic fires. And so I, that's the metaphor I reach for to draw to, to communicate the hope that I have. So uh, I think I'm sober-minded. I'm clear-eyed about what is happening, and I don't see it I see the church really being reduced by it, but not destroyed. And but I don't see it all as terrible. I mean, what what was terrible was that for so long that we have embodied a kind of Christianity that is, you know, somewhat Jesus and a whole lot of empire. And that's what's bad. And I mean, as it as the church kind of strode through the earth as a colossus, at least in the Western world dominating everything, that may have made certain people happy to have that kind of power and authority and cultural dominance, but it didn't look very much like Jesus. And so Mm -hmm. losing that is actually a good thing. And so that's why I still say I can have hope that that I've understood how how to let go of that which needs to be let go of, but still hold on to the true essence of faith that... Well, that to... To me, that's what you've done with your own spiritual, with your own spiritual house. You you sort of let go of the parts that needed to be let go, and you renovated it, and you, and you rebuilt it. And certainly now your spiritual house is better, theologically and philosophically, and biblically and historically. But I want to say that it's not just better; it's beautiful. And that maybe Prince Mishkin was right that beauty will save the world. Because beauty is revelatory. Yeah. And I think I think your house doesn't just make sense. It can't just be biblically defended, although it can be biblically defended. It can be philosophically defended. It can be defended in all the different ways. But the thing about it is that it's actually beautiful. 
Yeah, and this is, um, I'll tell a story that's not in the book because I was, it's, it's hard to, I just didn't want to get into, into it in the book. But um, Fyodor Dostoevsky, who anybody that knows me knows is a prime source of my theology, in a letter to his brother, he said, Nikos, uh, if you know Dostoevsky's story, I mean, he went through a period of probably atheism, uh, certainly where he'd rejected Christianity and was at the very least ag- even agnostic, if not just not, not atheist. But it revived, and it revived when he was in prison. And uh, he writes to his brother, and he says, if it should be conclusively proven to me, mathematically, he uses the word mathematically, mathematically proven to me, that Christ is outside the truth and truth is outside of Christ, I would rather be with Christ than with the truth. Now, this is a controversial statement. He didn't, you know, it was in a private letter to his brother. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we have those letters now. I actually love that statement, and I agree with it. But I have to explain what I mean. First of all, I do not believe that Christ is in any way different than the truth. I believe Christ is the truth. But I also know, for me anyway, I think I am better suited to identify beauty than truth. I mean, I want to know truth, but I, I think my capacity to go, we, we, BZ, we want you to pick, we want you to pick either which is true or which is beautiful. And I say, I trust my aesthetic instincts more than my, whatever the other word would be, my whatever, truth, truth finder. I, I think this is, this is also a result of the Enlightenment, is that we've decided that things like revelation or just the recognition of beauty is somehow inferior to mathematics <laughs> or something mm-hmm. like that. Christ is so beautiful that I want, I want to say it like this. There, there's, there's at least one thing. There's at least one thing that is too good not to be true. Um, you know, Voltaire says, if God didn't exist, we would have to invent him. I say, if Christ never existed, we would never have dreamed him up. And so, um, or let me say it a different way. The Greek philosophers talked about the transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Later, the church fathers say yes to this. Yes, the good, the true. And by transcendentals, the good, the true, the beautiful, we mean these are attributes that need no other justification. They don't have to serve some other end. They don't have to be utilitarian. Uh, we want the good because it's good. We want the true because it's true. We want the beautiful because it's beautiful. Yeah, that's the end of it. They don't, they're self-justifying. And then the church fathers will say, yes, the true, the good, the beautiful are attributes of God. Now, the church in its 2,000-year sojourn through this world has done a lot with apologetics, that is, defending the truth as seen in Christ. And the church has done a lot with ethics, that is, interpreting the good in the light of Christ. Uh, As far as the beautiful goes, its church has been hit and miss. Sometimes it it leans into aesthetics. Most of the time, it seems to have missed that. 
and and been more shaped by the world regarding beauty as mere adornment or fashion or something like that. Well, in the time in which we live, it really may though be the beautiful may be the path forward. So I'm not I'm not saying that Christian apologetics or ethics are invalid. Now there there is a form of Christian apologetics that I just mildly slightly critique in the book or maybe a little stronger than that that I think is entirely unhelpful and it's not really a true apologetic anyway. But setting that aside, I'm not saying that Christian apologetics and Christian ethics have no role. I'm just saying that at the time in which we live, the wider society is not going to be interested in uh, our claim of having absolute truth or having superior ethics. And perhaps for very good reasons, they're going to be, be suspicious of that. Uh, that leaves one path forward, and that's beautiful. So the beautiful. So make it real simple. If we posture ourselves in society in this present moment as standing in the marketplace of ideas and saying, "Hey, we have ultimate truth, and we know what's good for you," and we meet at ten o'clock on Sunday morning, <laughs> I don't think that's going to be very persuasive. And but but if we can get about the business of living beautiful lives. That's something different altogether. Because Miguel Cervantes, the author of uh, Don Quixote, says, it is the charm and prerogative of beauty to win hearts. Beauty is non-coercive, but it is effective. Beauty has a way of sneaking past our defenses. And I mean, there's a reason why we talk about falling in love. You know, it, it was sort of, we, we didn't have much choice. We just fell into it. And I think the beauty of Christ is such that we can fall in love with Christ. And I, I see the primary task of the church right now is to present the beautiful Christ without a lot of argument, without any coercion, and trust that the beauty of Christ is sufficient to cause people to fall in love with this one. Well, I guess one of the things I didn't grow up going to church, and so you know, back in the in the seventies, um, I had friends that were involved in what was called. I didn't know it was fundamentalism, but that was just Christianity, as far as I knew. Yeah, and they gave me a a, a picture of God that was decidedly not beautiful, and they told me that I better believe that it was beautiful, and I better worship it because if I don't. This God's going to send me to hell. It, it, that whole thing just wasn't well, David. Beautiful, that's, but that's, that kind of thing is on fire. It's going to burn up. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. it it may be sustained into the future by a few very strange, odd sectarian groups, but that kind of Christianity is under such duress when everything's on fire that it's not going to. I mean, it's it's in its death throes. And to which I say, praise the Lord. The problem, though, becomes when people think that the that only fundamentalist distortions of Christianity Christianity are Christianity. That's where the problem is, and that's that's when that's when I see Christians who have been raised in fundamentalism turning away from Christianity, but maintaining their fundamentalism. I mean, in their deconstruction, they've remained fundamentalists. They haven't. Mm-hmm. They haven't approaches with any subtlety or nuance. Uh, rather, it's if I can't, if I can't defend that the universe is six thousand years old, then I reject all of Christianity. 
Well, that's fundamentalism. <laughs> You've just gone in one giant leap of faith from being a fundamentalist Christian to a fundamentalist atheist. You may be an atheist and no longer a Christian, but you're still a fundamentalist. That's part of the problem. One of the things I think that why people are responding to your ministry, to your writing, into your sermons, and I want to talk a little bit about your sermon uh, <clears throat> podcast, but is that you're describing a vision of God that is beautiful. And when you describe, a, when you just speak a beautiful vision of God, it has its own intrinsic attraction. Yeah. You don't have to make people be attracted to something that's beautiful. But you do have to describe something that's beautiful in order for them to be attracted to it. And so I uh, now each week, uh, part of my spiritual discipline in the morning is I, I listen to some different sermons and your, your, I, I listen to your sermon podcast. And I look forward to that part of my week. And so I appreciated that toward the end of the year uh, last year, leading up to the, up, up the season of Advent and towards Christmas, you did some sermons. On the based upon the book when everything's on fire, and so I want to encourage people to go to the Word of Life Church podcast. Pastor Brian's on. Look that up, and to and to start hearing those those weekly sermons. And there was one sermon you gave on December fifth, entitled "A Refiner's Fire." And to me, that that sermon particularly went along with a lot of the themes in this book. And it's based out of Malachi, and you talk about how it contains the prophecy of the coming messenger. Uh, coming with a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. I think you ask a good question. Like, why do we just think about that fire image? But there is also the fuller's the fuller's soap. But you talk about how we'll all appear before the um, judgment seat of Christ, and it's pretty scary stuff. But then you say, should we fear this fire? To which you answer, ultimately no, pen ultimately yes. And so I wonder if you could expand on that some. Yeah, I mean, in pursuing a beautiful picture of God, I'm not entirely eschewing what is known in Scripture as the fear of the Lord. Uh, now, let's be clear here. I am not preaching a monstrous deity that you should be terrified of like it's some you know Stephen King monster. But I think it's how we begin to take God seriously, um, that, that our lives are to be judged in the light of the sinless one. Now, the sinless one loves us, and the sinless one intends us no harm. But the sinless one who is the judge is going to require that we see ourselves as we are. Um, and also... And I want to be clear. I want to be clear about this. We live in God's creation, God's cosmos. There is no other. And the grain of the universe flows toward love. That is, if we coordinate our lives with love, love for God, love for the other, it tends toward well-being. It doesn't foreclude any specific tragedy and sorrow from happening, but over the course of a life, it tends to well-being. If, though, we say, you know what? I don't want to worship God, and I don't want to love my neighbor. I'll do my own thing, which is you're going to be an idolater, probably worshiping self in this age, and I don't really care about how I treat my neighbor because I just I want, I want what I want. So that's 
injustice. If instead of love of God and love of neighbor, you go through life in a trajectory of idolatry and injustice, you are going to suffer the affliction of self-inflicted wounds. Now, you can call this the judgment of God if you like, because it's the way the universe is just created. You can call it the judgment of God if you like, but it's consequential, not retributive. It isn't God saying, oh, you, you, you idolater, you unjust person, you, I'm going to smite you. <laughs> Just, just because it makes me mad. No, it's, it's, it's the consequence of not relating rightly to being. I know this is an audio podcast, but uh, we can see one another. I don't know if you can you see. You, you can probably see over my shoulder, David, there's a wood stove back there. And in fact, as soon as I get done, I'm going to go split some wood and get ready for, to have some because it's cold here. And... Um, so, so I have a wood stove, and I, I, I dearly love my wood stove. And I, I, like, I like having that thing fired up in the winter. But I have eight grandchildren, and some of them are quite young. And so let's say, let's say that they know me as Papa. So Papa has a law that he gives to little, very little grandchildren. Thou shalt not touch the stove. Now, why do I do, where does that come from? That comes from love. And wood stoves are a good thing. You know, it brings warmth and it's, you know, just the ambiance. It's a good thing. But if you touch it, you know, if you just pull and go and put your hand on it, when the fire's burning, then you'll burn your hand. So let, let's say, so I, I issue a law. Uh, I issue a law. And uh, we'll, I'll, I'll pick one of, one of the young ones, uh, Pax. Pax is a young grandson. And I say, Pax, uh, thus saith Papa, thou shalt not touch the wood stove. So I've given the law, the law's good, and imagine though that Pax touches the wood stove and he burns his hand. Now, if he was a, you know, if he was a terrible theologian, <laughs> he might say, ah, I have offended the sovereignty of God, or no, the sovereignty of Papa. And in Papa's sovereignty, he has burst forth in his wrath and brought pain into my life, burned me. Well, of course, none of that's true. None of that's true. It's just that, that, that we live in that which, in God's good creation, though it has a grain, an arc, a bent. It has a flow. Go with it, it tends towards well-being. Go against it, and then we get burned. That's, that, that recognition is what we would call the fear of God. Now, it's not the, it, and it's a good place to begin. It doesn't tell the whole story. It's not the end of the story. And the end of the story is, the restoration of all things, and all shall be well, and all shall be well, and God shall be all in all. But along the way, there are these kinds of phenomena. So, so what happens is you have some people, a lot of people, that grow up in some sort of you know fundamentalism that's hell obsessed, and it's evangelism by terrorism, and and you know good cop bad cop routine so that so that Jesus is the good cop that saves you from his anger issue father who's the bad cop who's going to burn you up in hell and, and so they grow up in this and then at some point along the way they find a better way of thinking about God but if not careful then they completely overreact and they want to somehow assume that there are no longer consequences 
and and that's why that's why I I avoid certain kinds of language, and the word universalism would be one of the words that I tend to avoid simply because I think it then becomes misunderstood and misapplied, as if suddenly I believe that it doesn't matter what you do with your life. No, it does mm-hmm. matter. It does matter. In the end, in fact, and in fact, we never get away with anything. Everything ultimately is addressed, and the recognition of that is what I would call the fear of the Lord. But if you're going to talk about an ultimate eschatology, I think all things are restored, but but never cheaply, and never through just you know the waving of a magic wand. All things are addressed; they are faced. We pass through these things, and it is the ultimate hope that gives me hope and gives me joy, but I don't want to be cheap about it. And so I want to, I want to tell people, no, how you live your life still matters. For example, I'll have people say to me, well, I think you should just love your neighbor as yourself. We don't need to have all this God business. You know, we don't need to worship Jesus. We should just love our neighbor as ourself. To which I say to people, well, I don't know about you, but you've underestimated, you've overestimated me. Left to my own devices, I can just be very selfish. <laughs> I mean, that's that's my that's my you know, I'm I'm pretty good at, at just being self-centered. It's as I follow Jesus, worship Jesus, seek to be like Him, recognizing that this is the revelation of who God is and who human beings are called to be. That's what helps me begin to move in the direction of loving my neighbor as myself. So the first commandment has to stay the first commandment. Now I feel like I'm rambling. Well, in the in the uh, sermon. Um, you make a very powerful declaration about people. You say that we all bear the imago dei, the image of God, which cannot be destroyed, and that we are all diamonds, albeit chaff-covered diamonds, but diamonds nonetheless, and how the judgment fires of God burn away the chaff, but they don't destroy the diamond. Can you say more about why you believe this? Uh, well, I, I guess what I would say about why I believe it is I think ultimately this is the trajectory of the best of Scripture, and that this is uh, among the best of our theologians. This is, seems to be where we arrive at. Look, if that which bears the image of God is eternally lost, and if this is the case based upon simply how many people call themselves Christian, then you're going to say the vast majority. Uh, This seems like a rather, uh, this seems to impugn the character of God, that God was able to save a few, but most were doomed and damned. And it raises the question, if this is the case, then wouldn't God have been a superior moral being to have never said, let there be? Um, that in, in saying, let there be, and that which comes into uh, cognition, self-awareness, in the image of God, that the vast majority of these creatures are lost to damnation, whatever that might be, it seems like, you know... God seems rather pathetic, <laughs> and uh, I just, I just don't, I can't, I can't think about God like that. I just don't see God as losing. In fact, I don't see God, I don't see God as losing overall. And in the end, my hope is God doesn't lose at all. 
I think that would be that's the hopeful way to approach this eschatology. And why wouldn't one? Um, you know, if 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 your feeling is, well, damn it, I don't want too many people saved. <laughs> Then I think, okay, you know, I, I see you have a journey yet to, to that you're going to have to travel, and I think that that is a reflection of some deep malady within our soul. If we find ourselves uh, afraid or even angry that too many might be saved, um, I, I, th I think if the the one person that I might be justified in wondering whether they could be saved would be myself because I'm my sin is the only sin I know ex existentially. Um, and if I can have hope in Christ for my own salvation, then why not for the rest of the world too? Sound a little bit like Kierkegaard there. You know, I try. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like, I'm, I, I'm inspired by the Acts 17 uh, where Paul declares to the pagans in Athens that they are that they are God's children and that God is not far from any one of them and how they live and move and have their being in God. And so for me, that just invites, I think, people to say, well, I can experience God because I'm a child of God and God is not far from me. And so God wants to re wants me to reach out. And so that we're in effect the children of God designed to reach out and have some type of mystical encounter with God. And that's part of the Imago Dei. That's part of being a child of God. So that is just resident within us. And I, I think you talk about that beautifully in the book. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, we have been visiting uh, for a long time. I just want to encourage people to check those, uh, to, to check out your sermon uh, podcast and, um, and, I would just like to conclude that um, that there is a in one of your sermons recently you were remembering your ordination, which was mm -hmm. forty years ago now, in November of nineteen eighty one. Yeah, and a prophecy was given over you by a man named Roland Smith mm -hmm. that you will have the ability to lay hands and impart the fire of God, and you offered that laying of hands to those at that service that day. And so I was just wondering if in closing you might impart that fiery love of God to us in prayer. Yeah, let's pray. Lord, so long ago, at least for me it was so long ago, when I was just a young man, just beginning, just 22, that dear man of God, Roland Smith, said you'll have a gift. You can stir it up from time to time to impart the fire of God. I believe that, and I believe that gift has been carried for these four decades, and I stir that up now. And Lord, I pray for the fire of God that does nothing but consume the channel. The fire of God that does alert us to how deeply we are loved. The fire of God that becomes the very life and energy of God at work in our lives. I pray that that would be imparted to people now. I pray this humbly, but I pray it boldly that the fire of God would come now to those that yearn for this, ask for it, are with us in this moment, and they're saying yes. Lord, I pray that you would hear their yes and bring this healing, redeeming, refining fire 
into their life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.